Hey, my name's Adam, and I am the West Shore Campus Pastor here at Coastline Church on beautiful Vancouver Island. Welcome to our podcast. All the content that you will find here is meant to point you to Jesus and encourage you in your journey wherever it is that you find yourself. So thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the message. Coastline West Shore, good to see you today. Great to be here with you. Wow, it is so, so good to see you. God bless you. Um, hey, today's a great day in church. Um, and uh, I do want to just say, isn't the team doing such a fantastic job? <laughs> Emily, Jason, you guys just make us feel right at home, feel like we belong. It's really good. Worship was wonderful. It's a lot of smiles, a lot of, lot of tender moments, and I always am so blessed. I always get a little teary, actually, when I come because I'm just so thankful for what God is doing here in the West Shore. And I've said this before, but in many ways, I look at this campus and I say, God, do it again. Do it again over and over again across our island because there are so many communities that need a life-giving church on this island. Do you agree with me? So pray with me. You know, this last first Wednesday, um, we actually got the map of Vancouver Island out and, and uh, went in, in different spots around the room just praying for the island because, you know, God's heart is big for this place. Hey, we love our island. But God's heart is big, and, uh, and so the Lord's going to show us how we can be a part of what He intends to do on Vancouver Island. So just understand, you're kind of a first fruits of what God wants to do in other communities. So be encouraged and keep shining your light, and let Easter be a special day for you where, you know, you do bring someone. Let's, let's um, make sure that there's people in, in both of those services because uh, Easter is a wonderful invitation time, so... Yeah, enough of that commercial. Hey, I'm talking today about, I'm actually preaching on something I've never uh, preached on before. Um, and, and I don't know exactly why I haven't preached on it. I think I've touched on this topic, but I've never preached a whole sermon on this until last week at the Victoria campus and now here. And this message is on heaven, on heaven. I've never preached a full message on heaven. Um, and I, and as I get into it, I do want to pause just for a moment to make a point of saying that this one year of being back after COVID is very significant. We're not making a big fuss about it, um, but it is very significant. Um, it represents a year of God's faithfulness to us, of God um, allowing witness to be born again in this community. And, um, you know, you're a testimony to the resilience of God's church. And so we praise God for that. So that was my, my little addition to what uh, Emily already shared with us. But um, now into the message for just a moment. I want you to think about this. I want to create a little tension for you just for a moment. Imagine that you have a loved one who's, you know, special to you. Maybe a, um, you know, maybe a family member, um, a niece, a nephew, someone who may be young and it feels like, um, you know, their life is ahead of them. And I want you to, just for a moment, imagine that they have a terminal illness and that the time is drawing near for their death. And I want you to imagine yourself going into their hospital room and sitting with them and them asking you a really important question. What's going to happen to me when I die? Where am I going to go? What's going to happen to me immediately after I die? What can I expect What's heaven like? And in that 
question, most of us would probably say something about no more sadness and no more tears and streets of gold. And beyond that, it gets a little foggy. Can we agree? Because obviously heaven is not something that um, we know a whole lot about, but I'm actually surprised as I did my research to find out how much there really is about heaven. In fact, um, I could have preached for a few weeks on heaven. I'm only going to preach this one. And so just know I'm scratching the surface today, but I want you to feel that tension, the tension of saying really to each one of us, what is heaven? What is heaven? And part of the problem is, is we've all been influenced by Hollywood. Did you know Hollywood has a heaven? Have you seen Hollywood heaven? It's disembodied spirits floating around on clouds with harps, right? Have you seen Hollywood heaven where, you know, there are no buildings, there's only fog, right? They must have a mega fog machine somewhere. You can never see anyone's feet, right? Um, there's no colors. There's no buildings. Um, there's no pants in Hollywood heaven, Everyone just wears robes, right? And, and so when you think about that image of heaven, it has this influence over us. A lot of Christians, when they think of heaven, I mean, even my, my daughter, who's 13, asked me, is heaven just one really long church service? Like a forever church service? No wonder people are not in a hurry to get there, right? Like, I like church, but an hour's pretty good, you know? It's awesome. Let's get to the coffee, right? Is it just one really long church service? And, and you know, you hear things like, we're just going to worship for eternity. People are like, oh, no, are you serious? That sounds exhausting, right? And so what is heaven? What is heaven? All the teenagers who just left the room and some of us who are still here are praying, God, please don't come back before I get married and have sex, right? <laughs> like, oh, God, please, if you're good, Please wait, right? People are planning their trip to Hawaii this spring. Oh, God, don't come back before I go to Hawaii, right? So the truth is, we don't know a lot about heaven, but we're pretty sure that it's not as great as marriage or sex or Hawaii, right? <laughs> I want to I make a statement here, and I'm coming in for a little bit of a landing on this one, and we're going to talk about it for a bit. I want to suggest that a faulty view of heaven confuses life on earth. In other words, if we don't have a clear view of heaven, sometimes life, it, you know, we get enmeshed in life in a way that, that confuses us and confuses the joy of what is our reward, what God has built as our reward. Um, in John 13... You know, Jesus is nearing the cross, and he's with his disciples. And in John 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. They have the last supper together, and Judas is en route now to betray Jesus. And so it really is becoming the very, very end. And in this, this time frame, you might wonder, what's Jesus going to say to them before he goes? Like it's the last rallying of the troops. Uh, what would you say to the disciples if you were Jesus? I mean, I think if, if I was there, I might say, okay, here's the strategic plan for taking over the world, right? Or I might say, here's the organizational chart. This is who's in charge of who because, because you guys fight a lot. So let me put it in order. 
Or, or maybe what I, what I might say is, okay, listen, what you guys are building is called the church. Everybody say it with me, church, right? Get all the disciples around. Yeah, ch- church, yeah, ecclesia, right? That's what you're building, and here's how it's going to look. I might, that might be my kind of last speech to them, but Jesus knows what's coming for the disciples. And, and, and he knows it's rejection and it's persecution. It's hostility. It's martyrdom. That's what's coming for the disciples. So this is what Jesus says at the very end. I want you to take note of this. John 14, 1 to 3. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Isn't it interesting that the last thing that Jesus really says to them is there's a wonderful place waiting for you. There's a reward. There's a, there's a place in heaven that I'm preparing for you so that you can come and be with me. Jesus knew that a crystal clear view of eternity and their future home in heaven would sustain them through the most difficult times. And friends, we all face difficult times, don't we? Difficult times come to us. And it's not Google, and it's not Apple, and it's not Tesla that are going to save us from the pain of life and the reality of death. We need the hope of heaven. We need the hope of heaven. So my goal today is to help you understand a little bit better about heaven, about about what what you can expect from heaven. And so I, I hope by the end of the day you're encouraged. I hope you've learned something new. I certainly did when I did my study. So I want to take just a minute now and let's look at the meanings of heaven. So when you, when you open up your Bible, there's a lot of stuff about heaven. I mean, right at the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth, right? And so what is that? It, the first really, you know, kind of main meaning of heaven is the sky or the universe, the stars and all of that. Let me, let me give you a, a, a verse from Psalm 19, verses 1 and 4. I'll put them together for you so you can see this picture. One of the meanings of heaven is the sky or the universe, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. So that's not talking about the heaven that we're going to go to. That's talking about this place that's up. And that's why a lot of us say, like, you know, go to heaven. We want to go up right? Because we have this picture of sky and universe. But, but the real meaning of heaven in terms of what's important to us today is what I would call the abode of God. It's where God is living. Now, we know that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. There's nowhere that God isn't. The Bible helps us understand that there's nowhere to go from his presence. But there is a place where his throne is, where he dwells. And in John chapter 4, in John's Revelation, no, John, in Revelation 4, John has a picture of heaven. He goes to this abode of God, and there's this massive throne there. Massive throne. And, and this refraction of light. It's like a rainbow of colors, different stones and gems and, and beauty and gold and silver. And, and there's these creatures that are worshiping always. There's these elders, and they throw their crowns down in front of God. There's this massive sound, this rushing wind, this powerful lightning, this, you know, this, this 
peals of thunder across, of, of lightning across the sky and the sound of thunder. It's a majestic, powerful image from Revelation 4, where John stands before the mighty throne of God. That is a picture of God's current abode. That's where God's throne is. But where is it that heaven is first revealed to us? How do we first come to understand what heaven might look like? And I think rather than going up, let's come back down to earth and go to the very beginning of the story. Because at the very beginning of the story, we're going to see creation but in its perfection. So let's look together. Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. It says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye. So in other words, there's beauty, right? They're pleasing to the eye. Just looking at them was like, wow. Pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. So do you have this picture in your mind? God created this perfect place and he put Adam in that perfect place. There's a river there. There's two trees. One is the tree of life. One is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and the tree, all the trees are beautiful. The Bible says that all the leaves were good for food. They could eat them all. Literally like a buffet of trees, right? You could eat anything that you saw. It was all edible. It was perfect. It was the perfect environment. God created heaven on earth. At the very beginning, this perfect and beautiful place. And he also provided a perfect companionship for Adam and Eve. The Bible ends chapter 2 of Genesis by saying Adam and Eve were together and they were naked without shame. What's the point here? What's the picture here? The picture is a perfect place with perfect companionship. There's no sin. There's no insecurity. There's no mixed motives. There's no comparison. There's no hypocrisy. There's no abuse. How would we even fathom such a perfect place? So God created heaven on earth. Now, I want you to, that's like the beginning of your Bible. Now, if you go to the very end of your Bible... In Revelation 21 and 22, you see the end of the story, whereas in Genesis 1 and 2, you see the beginning of the story. And, and I, I want you to see that the, the reason why I'm telling you the beginning and I'm going to show you the end is because they mirror each other and they help us see the picture of heaven. In fact, I want you to go to Revelation 22. We're going to look at it on the screen, but I want you to see that this in, in my Bible, the heading here is Eden Restored. Eden Restored. Revelation 22, verses 1 to 3. The angel, then the angel showed me, so this is John's vision of heaven, showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river, listen, this is so good. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. I just have to stop there for a minute. Do you see what I see? In the original garden, there was the tree of life. And on the other side of the river, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But in the restored Eden, it's life. 
just life on both sides of the river. I hope you're seeing the comparison here. It's a mirror. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of what? Of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Someone say, praise God. So what I, what I want you to see here, the reason why I show you these two images is because one parallels the other. The Garden of Eden was perfect. It was heaven on earth. And now we see this new picture of this beautiful city and all of the nations. You know, there's more than just a garden. Now there's cities. Now there's a nation. But there's such a parallel. There's the river. There's the trees. There's the, the, the healing of the nations. And there's no more curse. You see, everything that gets destroyed in Genesis 3 with the fall, all the way through Revelation 20, gets restored when God brings a new heaven and a new earth. Now, this is mind-blowing. So in order for this to really sink in, can I show you an image? Can I just be a little bit teachy for a minute? Sorry about that. I just want you to get this concept. It's actually really, really amazing. So we're going to show an image. It's going to come up here on the screen. And I want you just to follow. This is what I would, I would call this a timeline of history, according to how I see the Bible. And in this timeline of history, we've just looked at the Garden of Eden, which is Genesis 1 and 2. And that's God with man in a perfect earth. And then we get to Genesis 3. And, you know, that's where sin enters the world and Adam and Eve eat of the fruit and all of that. And that's the fallen world, Genesis 3 through Revelation 19. So almost the whole bulk of your Bible is life in a fallen world. God separated from man in a cursed earth. That's why it says in the verse we just read there, there'll be no more curse. And then you get to a very important point in the scripture. It's only a few verses long, but it's Christ's return and final judgment. Jesus comes back. And that's God with man in a temporary earth. That's this earth, God with us on this earth. And then the long-term plan all along is that God gives us a new heaven and a new earth. And that's Revelations 21 and 22. And that's God with man in a new heaven on a new earth forever. So I, I want you to see that's the goal. That's what God has planned for you. A new heaven and a new earth. And why? Why is that so important? Because it's not a church service forever. It's a physical place that we inhabit where there are cities and there are nations and it's perfect and God is the king and his light fills everything and we get to enjoy uh, all of the goodness of even this earth. Okay, let me just, let's, let's look at the new heaven and the new earth. Okay, Revelation 21. If you have your own Bible, this is kind of cool stuff to highlight. But Revelation 21, the first five verses, here's John. Here's what John sees. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look. God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Just put your finger on that a minute. I know it's on the screen, but just put your finger there for a minute. 
We have a heart for revival. We actually sing it, God, we need revival. We want revival. What are we saying? We're saying, Matt, God, come be with us. The longing in your heart, God already knows it. He put it there. You want to be with God. You want to be in the place that's perfect where his presence and his glory is there because in that place there's fullness of joy, the Bible says. And so when we're longing for revival and we're calling for an encounter, for an a, a touch from God where heaven touches earth, what we're saying is just give us a little taste of heaven, Lord, because even just a little taste of heaven on earth is what brings a radical transformation in communities, in churches, in cities, and in nations. Just a little touch. Imagine when God comes to dwell with us forever, forever. So then we get to the good stuff that you may already know. He says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For, for the old order of things has passed away. The old order of things is that fallen world, all the mess, all the pain, all the loss that we've experienced, that's been experienced through history. All of that, God intends to wipe it all away. And, and he who was seated on the throne said, what? I'm making everything new. You see, this is, this is a qualitative word. So, so I, I want you to understand that this planet is amazing, but the new earth will be even better. It's like trading in your beater for a Tesla. I mean, they're both cars. They both have similarities. They both have steering wheels. They both go down the same road. There's similarities, but it's a whole new world, right? Right? You're going, I can't hear the engine. Maybe you don't like Tesla, so it's a bad example, but you get the point, right? You get what I'm saying here. It will be a total upgrade. The best that you've experienced on this earth can't be compared with what God has planned for you in the new heavens and the new earth. I mean, I love Vancouver Island. I feel called here. God's put this, uh, this island in my heart. And I think if the Garden of Eden still exists, it must be here. But friends, take your pick. Strathcona Park, Della Falls, Cathedral Grove, Tofino Beaches, Britannical Beach. You choose it's nothing. It's nothing compared to what your God has in store for you in the new heavens and the new earth. That's your forever home. That's the home you were fashioned for, where God dwells and perfection is there and beauty abounds. And like the old earth, there'll be cities and nations and art and beauty and relationships. Let that soak in for just a minute and let that allow you to throw away your small view of heaven where you're sitting on a cloud with a harp. Because this is what God has planned for you. It's so much more, friends. So much better. This is your reward. And this is what we long for. This is what we long for. So you're going, okay, that's really cool. Like, really cool. And sort of out there. But what happens when a Christian dies? As far as I can see, the new heavens and the new earth isn't here yet. So what happens when a Christian dies right now? And I think that's a fair question to look at. Let's go back to that, um, that image that I had with all the boxes. Can you pull that one up again for me? If you can go back to that one, it's kind of back up the list a little bit. Maybe not. Yay, good job. Let's hear it for the media team. 
Way to go. So, so obviously this was the perfection we started with. This is the thing we were just talking about. But right now, this is the reality. This is where we live. And so what happens when I die and I'm part of this fallen world and I'm living in an earth that's separated uh, from God in this cursed earth? I'm not staying here, obviously. Some people might say, well, you just stay in the ground until Christ returns. I don't agree. Some people would say, well, you go to purgatory and then people pray you from there into heaven. I don't agree. I want to show you what I believe happens, and I'm going to use a few verses, but let me first, you know, kind of help you land with this. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 and 7, or 6 and 8, this is Paul speaking. He says, therefore, we were always confident. I think confident is such an important word, because this is the issue for Christians today. We're just not confident. So part of this whole series of doing the God is stuff, of doing the firm foundation, was so you can be confident. And so I love that Paul says here, therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. There's a separation between us and God. And we are also confident, says we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body. And what happens when I'm away from the body? I'm at home with the Lord. Do you see that there? So friends, let me help you understand. When a Christian dies, they immediately go into the presence of God. Immediately go into the presence of God. Scholars and theologians call this the intermediate heaven. Jesus used a term on the cross with the thief that was dying. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And and in Luke chapter um, 16, Jesus tells a parable. And And he gives us a little bit of that picture of that intermediate heaven there. Um, It's a place in the presence of God where you await the new heavens and the new earth. And I believe that's where we go right when we die. So verse 19 of Luke 16, Jesus is telling this parable. He says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. And at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. Now, this isn't the Lazarus that was Jesus' friend who Jesus raised from the dead. We're going to talk about him actually in a minute, but this is not that person. This is a story that Jesus is telling, and he's giving names to the character. This character's name is Lazarus. And he was covered with sores and, and, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. That was his plight. He sat there begging, longing to eat from the rich man's table, covered in sores. It's a really sad story. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Verse 22, the time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him where? To Abraham's side. So this is Jesus expressing this idea of the intermediate heaven. This place where I go immediately. I go to Abraham's side. It's kind of funny. Um, I was talking to Eden about this, my, my uh, 13-year-old. And she was like, Dad, like, what happens when you die? And I'm like, oh. And of course, okay, I'm a Sunday school kid. So I like grew up in church. And I was, I'm old enough to have like started my Sunday school in King James. And then, and then it turned to NIV. So I said to her, oh, well, that's easy. You're going to go to Abraham's bosom. And she goes, that's disgusting. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's King James. Abraham, this, this verse in the King James would say Abraham's bosom. Um, she's not interested in Abraham's bosom. But 
Abraham's side gets the same point across, all right? She's like, that's the grossest thing I've ever heard. So it's this intermediate heaven, the Abraham side. And the rich man also died and was buried. So here's what I need you to see is that Jesus speaks to the immediate transition. Immediate transition from death to eternity. But this parable also makes it clear that there are two destinations. This parable helps us understand that when we die, there is eternity immediately. And there's two destinations. And so let's, let's back up. Let's read verse 22 again. And then we'll keep going in the story. The time came. When the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side, and the rich man also died and was buried. And now here's verse 23. In Hades, where he was in torment, your, your Bible might say in hell, where he was in torment, he looked up, this rich man, and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. And so Jesus helps us be very clear here. Two destinations after death. One, heaven, a place of comfort. And Hades, or hell, a place of torment. And Jesus makes it even clearer in Matthew 25 where he says, that place is fashioned for the devil and his demons. In other words, it's never been the intention of God that people go to hell. But here's what we have to understand is that if heaven is a real place, then hell must be as well because Jesus speaks of them together. So for some of us, we'd like to eliminate the pain and suffering of the idea of hell and what that means for us and maybe for people we love. But we really like understanding heaven. I, and I don't blame you for taking that orientation. But let me just help you understand here. Jesus talked about these two together. And he ends his parable with the point. That's what Jesus would do. And he says at the end of his parable, he's speaking in Abraham's voice to the rich man who says, Will you go and tell all, send Lazarus down to tell all my brothers not to come here where I am? And, and Abraham speaking says, They will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And the point of the parable is that Jesus is saying, I'm talking about myself. And the truth is, there will be people that are so steeped in unbelief that even when I rise from the dead, they won't believe. They won't believe. And so what's the point here? When it comes to eternity, your destination is based on whether or not you believe Jesus is who he says he is. And that's the whole point of the parable, friends. That's the point. Although there's clues for us about eternity, the point of the parable is, do you believe who Jesus says he is? And, and Jesus speaks to this again. Now let's jump to the story about his friend Lazarus who died. And Jesus comes into the situation and Martha and Mary, who are the sisters of Lazarus, are so distraught. Of course, they've lost their brother and it seems too early but look how Jesus speaks to this idea of belief in him is what makes all the difference. He says, it says here in John 11, it's, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then the very most important question in the whole world, my friends, is Jesus looks at Martha and says, do you believe this? 
Do you believe this? And why is this the most important question in all of the world? Because this question determines your eternal destination. Two destinations. And Martha's reply is what I believe all of us are longing to reply. And I would encourage you, if you've never made this reply, to make it. She says, yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Two destinations. One based on belief and the other on unbelief. So please, hear me. Hear me. God doesn't send people to hell. He rescues them from hell. That's your God. God doesn't send people to hell. Unbelief does. And and, and you may wonder, well, then what is God's heart? What is God's heart for humanity? And and 2 Peter helps us understand this. We see God's heart in 2 Peter 3.9. It says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Peter's talking here. Why? Because people are going, come on, God, when are you going to come back? Jesus said he was going to come back for us. We just read that. I'm going to go prepare a place for you and come back and get you. And they were wondering, like, when is this going to happen? And so he says, hold on a second, hold on a second. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone, everyone. Can you say that with me? Everyone to come to repentance. That's your God's heart for you. God's heart for you is heaven, friends. What he's prepared for you is heaven. A new heaven, a new earth, a place where you can be with him. And so hear me now. Let's take heaven seriously. Let's take it seriously. Because a faulty view of heaven will confuse life on earth. Let's take heaven seriously. So I'm going to ask you three important questions as we wrap up. The first one is is this. Are you certain you are going to heaven? That question knocks on your door, doesn't it? Are you certain you're going to heaven? And here's what I want to say to you. You can be certain. You can be so certain. You can be certain without a shadow of a doubt. Because it isn't about giving to charity or attending a church or doing good deeds. Your access to heaven is found in the person of Jesus, whom God sent to die in your place and to pay for your sin. And so if you believe by faith and receive through grace the love of Jesus Christ, you can be certain of heaven. It's that simple. It's that simple. You can be certain. So if that's not been your experience, make it your experience. Say what Martha said. I do believe you are who you say you are, Jesus. I believe. Save me by your grace. And you can be certain of heaven. First John says it this way. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And then verse 13 is so good. Here's what it says. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. It's about certainty. You can know. You can have the Son. Receive Him by faith. Believe and receive and you can be certain. Second question. 
do your passions and your priorities reveal a temporal or eternal perspective? This one, this one causes us to wrestle, doesn't it? This is where life gets real for us. You know, the Bible says that there's a blessing for those who long for his return. It's like we're waiting for the end to come because we want to be with Jesus and we want God to come and reveal himself. We want that to be the case. There's this longing. And the reason why is because we understand, like Paul said to the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we're citizens. And so the wrestling comes when we start to think about our calendar. Like if you and I sat down together and we just said, okay, here's our calendars. Does our, does our calendar reveal that there's a sense of eternity coming? Or is it all temporal stuff? Does our calendar show any evidence that we're focused on eternal things? And let's say we got really honest. Like we're like, okay, let's talk turkey. And we showed each other our bank statements. What our bank statements reveal? That we have any evidence of a focus on eternal things? And you know, I just want us to wrestle with that as the people of God. Because there's a blessing for those of us who long for Christ's return and for heaven to touch earth. The third question is this. Are there people who you care about who don't know about heaven or how to get there? So this is where mission is born. I think about what's coming. I think about Easter. I think about the opportunity to invite. I promise you, we will give people the opportunity to make the certainty of heaven a reality in their lives on that day. Why don't you consider this? God's only plan is for everyday believers like you and me to courageously look other people in the eye and tell them that eternity is real. That's the plan of God. Can you believe it? That's the plan of God. So let the Lord speak to your heart today. I want to pray with you. If you need certainty, grab it. Confess your belief in Jesus. Confess that he is your savior, that he is the son of God and have certainty of heaven. If there's a need to shift priorities on your calendar and your bank statements, do it. Do it. That's why we have these kind of moments so we can reflect and take a step in our discipleship. That's the whole point. It's not guilt. It's encouragement. Let's do it together. Let's practice heaven on earth because we want heaven to come to earth. And maybe there's just someone, when I said that, that third question, you just go, oh, that's my loved one. That's my neighbor. That's that guy who keeps bugging me at work with all those questions. There's somebody that you are caring about who needs you to be bold and courageous and say eternity is real and you can be certain. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you so much for your eternal word. Thank you for all that's here for us to learn about. Thank you, God, that 
this life is challenging and difficult, but heaven is a certainty. And we are grateful that someday, Lord, you will remove the curse. You'll take this fallen world and you will allow it to be reborn in a new heaven and a new earth. And so, Lord, we long for that. But in the meantime, God, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to have a proper view of heaven so that we do not have a, a confused view of life. Lord, take our faulty view of heaven, our small view of heaven, our Hollywood view of heaven, or our eternal church service view of heaven. Lord, and pack that away for good that we might say with all of our hearts that we long for your return and all that you will bring. And we wait with patience for you, God, because we thank you that you are not slow in keeping your promises as some understand slowness, but you are patient with us not willing that any would perish but that all would come to repentance burden us Lord with that truth in Jesus wonderful name Amen